Now, imagine that you have a 12-year-old son who loves to ride a bike. And every spare minute of his time, he's constantly riding the bike because he loves it. But one day, while he's at school, the dad notices there's a crack in the frame and the whole thing could break in half at any moment. And so he goes out and he buys him a really, really nice high-end bike to replace the bike that is, is cracked. And he's going to give it to his son the following day on his birthday. So he brings the bike home, he hides it, and makes sure that uh, he doesn't see it, but also takes his old bike while he's at school and sets it out to the trash. And so, hoping the garbage man takes it before he gets home, you find out that that's not the case. Your son is walking down the street, or his son is walking down the street, coming home from school, and he sees another kid stealing his bike out of the trash. Now, the, the kid who stole the bike, doesn't even know it's junk. He thinks he's just stealing the bike because it was left out. And so the son is heartbroken because he just lost this bike that he, he so loved. So the question is, who's responsible for him losing his bike? If you say the thief, you, would be, uh, you wouldn't be wrong. But mainly... It was the dad. The thief played a role, but the real mastermind behind it was the man. The man and the thief did the same thing. They both took his bike away, but the man meant it for good. The thief meant it for evil. Two performers doing the same action, but with opposite purpose. Now, if you thought of Genesis 50, verse 20, you're way ahead of me. Remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And they were like the thief, doing evil. But God masterminded that whole thing in order to get Joseph down into Egypt where years later he would end up saving his family's life. Genesis 50 verses 19 and 20 says, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, why do you think it was so important to God to teach us this concept right away in the first book of the Bible? Why is it so important for us to grasp this concept of there being a human side and a divine side to all the things that people do? Well, here's why. Because it's important for me to look at certain events mainly from the human side. 
After all, you don't want to judge the sentencing of a murderer saying, well, you know what? It's okay because God foreordained what they did from the, before the foundation of the world, so let's not sweat it. That would be a wrong way to look at that. God wants us to focus on the human responsibility in that situation. But there are other times God wants us to mainly focus on the divine side like Joseph did. Like when we're tempted to worry or fret about what people are doing or might do. That's when you need to look at the divine side of things. How do you know which kinds of situations call for one and which situations call for the other? Well, we can take our cue from God's Word. But there is one incident that took place in history that God really, really, really wants us to look at from both perspectives. Both are highlighted in Scripture because both are critically important. It's the most important event in all human history. And we need to understand it. We need to have a good grasp of both the human side and the divine side. The event that I'm talking about is the cross, the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew 14, or Mark 14, I'm sorry, uh, begins with what's known as the passion narrative, which is the account of the suffering of Christ. And if you remember from last week, the word passion is actually the word, uh, the Latin word passio, which means suffering. And so you see, God wants to make sure that we have a clear grasp of both the human and divide, uh, divine side of what's going on with Jesus's suffering. And last week, we looked at one of the greatest acts of kindness being done to Christ as Mary worshipped her Lord with this very expensive oil and perfume. And the person who criticized that act the most, the one who pretended to be the most moral and spiritual, is now the one who commits the greatest act of treachery this world has ever experienced. And as we'll see in the next couple sermons on this night, Christ would institute the Lord's Supper, which we still observe 2,000 years later, and a matter of fact, we'll even observe this morning. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text found in Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 10 and 11. By the way, if you think that two verses are going to keep it under an hour, It ain't. So, starting with verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, here in our text, we see that Judas plots betrayal and approaches the religious leaders. What was the motivation of Judas to betray Jesus? 
Well, we're not explicitly told, but we do know that he was motivated by covetousness, and you would see that in John 12, 6. And also that he was possessed by Satan, and that's in Luke 22, 3. The reason the religious leaders needed Judas was on account of their fear of the multitudes. Otherwise, they would have no doubt arrested Christ publicly. The dark cloud of betrayal hangs all over this passage. And perhaps the name most synonymous with darkness and betrayal in all of the Bible is Judas Iscariot. uh, Jesus calls him the son of perdition. And you can see that in John 17, 12. Judas is called the son of perdition because he had the character of a destroyer. He was a traitor and a murderer. And this shows that Christ, who knew his heart, regarded his character as one of a wicked man, one whose appropriate name would be the son of perdition. Judas was a traitor, a murderer, a thief. We read in John 12, 4, 6 about that. The story about uh, Mary's extravagant worship of the anointing of Jesus with expensive oil. And in John 12, 4 through 6, it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Luke also writes in Acts 1.16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. Now this verse here tells us that David wrote about Judas and his betrayal of Christ. Where do we find that in Scripture? Where does David talk about Judas? Well, there's two places in particular. The first is mentioned in Psalm 41.9, where it says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We also see in Psalm 55.12 and 13, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. You see, David knew firsthand in his life how it felt to be betrayed, especially betrayed by a friend. In 2 Samuel chapters 16 and 17, we have the story of the chief counselor of of David, and his name was Ahithophel. And Ahithophel later betrayed David. 
When Absalom rebelled against his father, King David, Ahithophel, David's friend, betrayed David and went to Absalom and had a plan on how to kill David. Well, in God's providence, the plan didn't work, and ultimately his plan was rejected. So in 2 Samuel 17.23, it says, Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. David, you know, was someone who internalized things that happened to him. The Holy Spirit then moved in David, and he wrote his experience of betrayal and suffering in the Psalms. David, therefore, is an inspired author who wrote not just of himself, but also of Christ. As David wrote about his friend Ahithophel and his betrayal, the Holy Spirit shows us in the New Testament that this was a type of what would happen to our Lord Jesus Christ by one of the 12 apostles, and that being Judas Iscariot. One author writes, Betrayal is the willingful slaughter of hope. Betrayal is the willingful slaughter of hope. The human, starts, the human side starts with collusion between two very unlikely parties. The story of, of Judas Iscariot talks about the chief priests who were Jesus' arch enemies, but also one of the 12 apostles. Remember how this chapter started in Mark 14.1? It says the chief priests and the scribes thought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. And then in verse 2, we see that there's a problem with the plan. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. You see, they wanted to kill Jesus, but the crowds were the problem. The solution arrives in verse 10, where we again read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. Well, it seems like there's the answer. One of Jesus' own inner circle, he'll know when and where the chief priests were able to catch Jesus in some private place away from the crowds. Jesus had been saying over and over, the son of perdition is going to be, um, the son of man is going to be handed over to the chief priests. And now it's about to happen. It's not only going to happen, it's going to happen exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. Judas portrays the scariest behavior of all. In this passage, it is truly frightening. He shows what can happen to a false Christian. We know a lot about Judas from the bits and pieces that we picked up through Christ's ministries. We know he was with Christ from the beginning. We know that Christ picked him as a disciple. We assume that he exercised the same power to preach and to heal and cast out demons that the other 11 had. 
And we also know that Judas was in charge of the finances and that he was also a thief. So it's very likely that he loved money. He wasn't in that inner circle, the Peter, James, and John circle, and maybe he resented that. We don't know. But we do know what he finally did. The problem is that our hearts are one of the slyest things we know. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We look at what Judas did and we think, I could never do such a thing. Judas would have said, I, I won't do something like that. The chief priests and the captains would have said the same thing. I, I, won't, I would never do that. I think it's interesting, and I think Paul Washer nailed it. He says the only reason many people don't go to the depth of sin that they are capable of is that they haven't had the opportunity to do so. These people had shaped their worldview to a place where evil looked good and good looked evil. Their wrong thinking led to wrong actions. And I doubt that these players would have defined their actions as, as evil. It, it isn't likely that they were saying, well, we know it's wrong, but we'll do it anyways. No. They lied to themselves about what they were doing. And they said that enough to where they actually believed their own lies. So how does this happen? How could this man be inside Jesus' most trusted group but be proven in the end to be false? Why wasn't he exposed early on? How could he foster this wickedness and yet still be untouched by the ministry of Jesus Christ himself? Well, he did it the same way that you and I would do it. Let's look at Judas's life and find out how to have your heart remain untouched by true ministry. Let's look at Judas's life and like I said, we don't know a ton, but we do know some, and we know that he had at least one secret sin. We know that he was stealing from the money box. This is probably discovered after his death, but that sin was happening while he was alive. Just think about this. Judas had a secret sin. He had to have known it was sin. And I'm sure he had a lot of justifications in his head. He knew that he was, in doing this, violating one of the Ten Commandments. And what did he do about it? Did he seek out some trusted person to help him with this inclination of sin? Did he expose it to someone who could help? Did he confess his sin to Christ? There's no evidence of that. Judas kept it hidden. He probably allowed his justif justifications to excuse his behavior in his head. This is where the devil usually starts. 
His goal is for your life to be ruined. His goal is that a life of destruction. And he prowls around for people whom he can devour. And that's what he wants for you and I. And one of the first things that he wants in our lives is an attitude or behavior in your life that the Bible clearly says is sin. He wants you to be doing it and thinking it on a regular basis. He wants it to become a stronghold so that you either don't want to give it up or it scares you to think about giving up because you feel like you can't stop. You're afraid it's too big to take on. And so you start to try to justify the behavior. He wants you to believe that you either can't or don't need to stop the behavior or the thinking. He wants you to think that there is some reason that this sin is permissible in your case. And so what do you do? You try to redefine sin. You try to make it look as if it's no longer sin. And you might actually do it theologically. You might actually find that you're able to use verse theology, taking the verse out of context to say, there, it's fine. How many times do you hear where, it's, where someone will mention where the Apostle Paul says the, the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't do, as an excuse for the Apostle Paul, like, oh, you know, oh, well. I, you know, no! Paul was crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wasn't an excuse. This was saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And you might say, yes, Scripture says that I shouldn't do these and think these thoughts. But you know what? That's just the way God made me. We see that all the time with different things, and especially sexual things like homosexuality. Well, God made me this way, so... That's, the, that's okay if I do it. No! You deceive yourself into justifying your own sin. But then the next step is what really makes it deadly. In order to accomplish the devil's plan in your life, the next thing that uh, is absolutely necessary is that you need to keep from bringing the sin out in the open. You make sure that this is a secret sin. That you don't bear your soul to God about your sin. And the devil knows that you need to keep it secret. And he doesn't mind that. He doesn't care. Because he's going to help you justify your position. He's going to comfort you in your sin. There's a difference between being comforted in, in your repentance and being comforted in your sin. 
There's a difference between being encouraged in your struggle and believing that your sin encouraged not to worry about it. Don't, don't call it sin. You know, the devil has a will for your life too. The devil will try to convince you to do his will, not God's will. So there's really sort of two applications here. The first is, are we being like Judas? Is there something in our life that's very questionable? Scripture appears to say it's wrong, but we cling to it anyway. We might make mention of it, but we really keep the details of the severity of it really hidden. People would probably be surprised if they saw what would go on in your mind. You know what? There are many pastors, many preachers who will flat out, and I just love, there's so many of them that say, if you saw my life, my, my thought life, my regular, on a regular basis, you might even think that I'm unsaved because you see spots of remaining sin. You know what? All of us have that. The question is, are you struggling with that? Are you wrestling with that? Are you taking up arms against that? You know, it's never, never safe to play loose and wild with sin. It's never safe to harbor evil. I like what the Puritans used to say. You need to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. And Judas is a perfect example of what secret sin results in. The second thing is, will our ministry help a potential Judas? Do we believe people's explanation of their own problem over what what sin says, or or what um, the Scripture says, I'm sorry. Do we believe people's explanation of their problems over what Scripture says? Do we sit there and listen to them and we go, well, that makes sense. I know Scripture speaks against that, but I don't want to say what Scripture says. We need to always look and consider things from a scriptural view. Folks, you either have one or one of two views. You either have a biblical worldview or you have a secular worldview. You either look at everything that happens biblically or you look at things that happen from the world. Where are you getting your greatest influence? Because the kindest thing that we could ever do to a person who is struggling in their sin is to address their sin and help them get out of it. 
But we have to understand that only the maker is qualified to tell us what it is and what is allowed and what is not allowed. Only God himself defines sin. Let's look at Luke's version of this event that's happening. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 3 and 4. Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. If you look at that, Luke uses a phrase that says, he went his way. In the Greek, that's the, the word aperkamai. And the best way to define that word is by looking at some other scripture. I would like you to turn to James chapter 1 and verses 23 and 24 because the same word is used there. James chapter 1 and verses 23 and 24. I think you're all familiar with this one. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and does and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself, and here's the word, and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You see, a perikomai is in, in this, uh, this state where the, the farther away it, it gets in distance, it fades. The farther it gets away from the source, so you look in the mirror, you go, oh yeah, that's me, and then you sort of forget as the farther away you get from it. Well, that's the same thing that happened to Judas. Judas detached himself, went away from the only source of holiness. When we have secluded our sin and gotten used to living dual lives, the next step is usually to do what is most true to ourselves. Betrayal is usually the result of a failure to commit ourselves. It's a display of lack of loyalty and that can be fostered. Betrayal is due to a person having a personal agenda that is different than the agenda of the group to which they belong. That's the danger in the present-day church in America. Most professing Christians look at church and they go, what church best fit fits my needs. They don't look at what church preaches truth. 
It's what will they do for me? They're not looking for a a family to integrate with. They're looking for a service group that serves them. And instead of viewing it as a family that graciously welcomes them into itself, they view it more like a Walmart where they walk down the aisle and they pick and choose what they want. There are many problems with this, but one of the greatest ones is that there's no loyalty. The 11 disciples that were left may not have represented Christ well, but down deep they were loyal to Christ and ultimately suffered and died for him. They were committed to Christ. They had deep belief that he was worth serving. And so their lives became dedicated to him. God was the most important person in their lives. But Judas was in that group for a different purpose. He had his own agenda. Judas was the most important person in Judas's life. He had in mind what he wanted out of this group, and he never got it. For Judas, he was following his own agenda. And not even a, there wasn't even a possibility of him changing his mind because he was for himself. And nothing would change him except the devil entered him. Judas was part of the group only as long as they met his agenda. When it stopped fulfilling what he wanted, he went to move on. And that wasn't a very big step for Judas. We're often aghast when we look at what Judas did. But we fail fail to see that this is often what happens in marriage splits and church splits. It's sort of the same vein. All it takes is for a person to have their own agenda and think that their agenda is more important than the purpose of the whole. A person who is committed primarily to their own benefit in life is by nature disloyal. Everything is a potential sacrifice on the altar of self. This truth should drive us to examine our relationship with Christ, with his bride, the church, with our spouse, with our friends. Do we truly love God more than self? Will we trust that he will truly reward us for faithfulness in a way that is more beneficial than the scraps that we can scrape up in this life on our own. That's what allows us to have loyalty to God's people. When we, when, even when that loyalty costs us, that's what allows us to remain committed to spouses committed to churches, even when it seems like it'll cost us greater than the benefit we gain. Essentially, the basis of our trust in one another is really trust and mutual commitment to Christ at the temporary uh, expense of our own benefit. 
Do you remember in Luke 22, 3 and 4 we just read, then Satan entered him? We saw the word aperkamai means to leave. Well, here's the word entered. It's um, erskamai. Erskamai. And it means to give into or take possession. Bible commentator John Gill says this, the devil who is the enemy of the Messiah, the woman's seed, entered into Judas, not corporally as he did with those who were possessed by him, but he entered into his heart. As the uh, Ethiopic version renders it, he put it into his heart to betray him. As it said in John 13, 2, he stirred him up and worked up the corruptions of his heart. Satan suggests evil things to his mind and baited his temptations agreeable to his malice and covetousness, end quote. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All Satan has to do is stir the heart of a wicked man. He doesn't even have to overtake the person. All he needs to do is get them to do what their heart already desires to do. I used to think that Satan entered him, uh, and that's what led Judas to do these awful things that he did. I don't believe that now. I now believe that this was well set in motion before Satan ever entered Judas. It's because Judas was devil-ready ready to go. He made all the evil, selfish choices needed to become devil-ready. He was not a committed follower of Christ. He had never dedicated his life to following Christ. And I think now that the devil entered Judas because this task was already he already had it set in in, uh, in process. Now, the devil just wants to delegate to Judas what he was going to do. The devil just wanted to go, you know what, Judas, all I have to do is to have you just give me permission. And Judas did that by rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. He displayed that Satan was his father. No, Satan was just entering one of his own children. That's why we're all guilty, and we can't blame Satan for our sin. He tempts, but we do. We do what we will, and so we're culpable for our own sins. I can't believe how many churches will teach that if it wasn't for Satan, we would be sinless. That's just not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We are all children of the devil, not children of God, until we are adopted into the family of God. And that is um, by grace through faith. 
or, or by faith through grace. Well, now I'm <laughs> by by faith, by grace through faith. There. <clears throat> Sorry, I have I have it written really small, and I keep saying it wrong. But <clears throat> I knew what I was trying to say. <laughs> so, continuing with verse eleven, we read, "And when they heard it, they were glad." And promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now we see this rejection of the chief priests. And it says that they rejected Christ. And now that Judas comes to him, they are glad about their chance. They're glad that now... You know, we, we were going, well, I don't know when we're going to be able to catch this Jesus alone, whatever. Now they're going, whoa, we got it. Now we have, have the plan can be put into motion. That word glad is the word caro. And it means uh, uh, to rejoice exceedingly. It's the same word, actually, that Paul uses in his letters to the Colossians. In Colossians 2.5, this is, this is where he uses the same word. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see you, your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Same word. Where Paul is rejoicing... That even though he's absent with the flesh, he's with them in spirit, rejoicing to see the good order and steadfastness of faith. Matthew records the same account. And let's go ahead and, and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Because here in Matthew, we see some extra details to this whole account. Matthew 26, starting with verse 14. Here it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What, will, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And so here Judas is. He cuts a deal with the religious leaders. And he spoke to the chief priests and captains. And you may end up realizing the chief priests have probably have been the Sadducees in upper leadership of Judaism. But the captains were probably temple guards. They would have had a limited civil authority to carry out the laws in regard to um, uh, religious worship. But here we see Judas ask them, how much will you give me? Remember just a few minutes ago? I mentioned Judas was always in it for himself. That's always Judas's question. It was probably the question he was asking when he began to follow Christ. How much will you give me? 
But he wasn't willing to accept anything on Jesus' terms. Because eternal reward wasn't enough for, for Judas. He did not trust Christ for the reward on Christ's terms. Judas wanted it on his terms. Well, one of the things that's very interesting is 30 pieces of silver was uh, uh, something that they would have a price for a slave. And Judas is basically saying that that is better than eternal life later if I have 30 pieces of silver now. I mean, Exodus 21 uh, 32 says, If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. I mean, this is what Judas gave up eternal life for? This is what Judas gave up the, the Savior for? You know, from this point forward, what we see is Judas is looking for a way for these people to arrest Christ privately. I don't know why this information is hard, so hard for them to get, but whatever reason, it was difficult to catch Jesus secluded. But there are several observations we can make. The first thing that we see is one of the 12 turned out to be a turncoat. There was a falseness even within the inner circle. And we can pretty well bet that there will be falseness in almost every every church. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul says, first of all, when I came, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Verse 19, he says, for there must also be factions among you. There must be factions among you. And here's why. That those who are approved may be recognized among you. Those that are approved are recognized among you. People will appear to be following Christ. They will appear to be a true body, member of the body, but at some point they either find something inside so distasteful or something outside so seductive that they leave the fold to per, uh, fold to per, um, pursue their own plans. And you know what? Quite honestly, we shouldn't be shocked when it happens, because Christ promised it. About the only place you don't find this is where there's persecution in the church. Persecution will tend to purify the church. And the thing that persecution does is it keeps falseness to a bare minimum. But right at this moment in this country, we don't really see persecution. And therefore, we have a lot of people calling themselves Christians that really shouldn't be. Secondly, we see that Judas sold out Christ for something that he didn't need. He essentially traded what he needed the most, eternal life, for something that he didn't need at all. And there are so many people that make the same fool's trade. They trade their lives for stuff. 
I love what Jim Elliott said. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So many people are lured away for the hopes of better things, giving up all kinds of things to obtain lusts of the heart. And here in the gospel accounts, we don't see anywhere where these disciples went hungry the whole time they were with Christ. Judas didn't need food, clothing, or shelter. But he held in his mind that he needed money. He needed to be able to pilfer that money box. And if he wasn't getting the money put in, he was going to find a way to get it. And he paid a great price for it. That's the thing about idols. They always make you pay a great price. They require worship at, at the expense of worshiping God. Third thing that we notice is that the leadership didn't approach G Judas. Judas approached them. These leaders would not have known that there was a traitor among Jesus' group had Judas not approached them. But once they were approached, they were more than happy to help Judas with his plan. Judas had more in common with these Christ-haters at this point than the Christ-lovers. The enemies of Christ will always have one thing in common. They hate God. Fourth, I'm going to start with a quote from Matthew Henry. Henry says, Note, the greater profession men make of religion and the more they are employed in the study and service of it, the greater opportunity they have of doing mischief if their heart has not been made right with God. If Judas had not been an apostle, he could not have been a traitor. If men had known the way of righteousness, they could not have abused it, end quote. Judas was in a position to be able to do this. If he was not in that position, there was no way that he could have betrayed Christ like he did. Being an apostle gave Judas an inside track, and it gave that inside track gave Judas privilege. And so essentially, insiders can do way more damage in the church than outsiders. We can steel our minds against the critics attacking us for believing in God and what God says. But you see, our defenses are down with those inside, those we believe to love Christ. Fifthly, leadership didn't attempt to make Judas testify against Christ. They could have easily done that as part of the deal, but they didn't. And why not? Because there was nothing to bring against Christ. He was innocent of all things. There was nothing that he could have testified that would have been false. But since in their minds Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, they thought the end justified the means. They were okay at taking whatever means they needed to get Jesus killed. And so they did it. They even, though one of his, his inner circle 
uh, could not come up with any offenses to Jesus, they said, well, okay, we'll do without that. We don't need that. We'll come up with something of our own. Now that we've taken a look at Judas, I want to take a quick look at these, the Jew, Jewish leadership. And really, everything I have to say here is not good because this is not a good group of people. But I do want us to consider one thing, the sovereignty of God in all of it. God allowed these men to be in charge of that which had his name on it. These men would readily kick people out of access to God. They didn't care if someone wanted to beg to worship God. They said, no, you're either going to follow our rules or you're not going to do it. So they blocked access to worship. They would actually do that at, um, at the Passover. They would end up not uh, uh, allowing their sheep to be sacrificed. And so the leadership would assume this, this uh, position where they were the determiners of what was good and evil. And so these people that really wanted to come to God, they would prevent. But this evil group, this evil group was going to do actually the most important thing for people anywhere. This evil group was going to do what it took for people to have their sin atoned for. This evil group and what they did would actually give others new life in Christ because they were going to crucify Christ and had they not carried out their plan, you and I would be lost. So while it may have seemed to those who were victims of this evil leadership, all was not lost. While those who suffered at their hands may have wondered what in the world is God doing, God had a wonderful plan. These men were self-serving. They were inept in their job. They were ripping people off, and they were doing it to the nth degree. They had Caesar as their king, and money and power was their lord. But they carried out part of the plan that God had them play. What about Christ? Jesus knew what, Je what Judas was doing. But have you ever considered how he treated Judas? Even though he knew what Judas was doing or what he was about to do, Christ never gave Judas a reason to reject him, even though he knew that Jesus would. Jesus told us to love our enemies and do good to all those who would try to hurt us. And, Ju and Jesus carried that example out perfectly. He knew all along that Judas was a betrayer. But think about it, no, not one single person in, in Christ's group ever 
had any idea that Judas was this kind of person. And so that means that Christ must have treated him like all the others. It was only at the very end that he singled him out. When you look at each of these paragraphs leading up to the cross, they all have one thing in common, Jesus' foreknowledge. In verses 3 through 9, we see Jesus' knowledge of his coming death and the fact that the gospel about him would be preached to the world. And then in the next paragraph, Jesus had foreknowledge of exactly what would happen when his disciples went into the city. Mark 14, 16 says the disciples went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. Then in verse 18, he had foreknowledge of the fact that one of the 12 was going to hand him over. In verse 27, he had foreknowledge that all of the apostles would fall away at his crucifixion. In verse 30, he knows that Peter would disown him three times before the rooster crowed that morning. That's pretty specific, folks. In verse 42, he knew when Jesus or Judas was about to appear. Then down in verse 62, he tells the chief priests, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. Now from the human standpoint, we see a man being battered by forces around him. But from the divine view, we see nothing short of divine omniscience. And with omniscience comes omnipotence. Jesus is in full control and mastery of every bit of this detail. And that's the purpose of verses 12 through 16 is to show us Jesus controls providence. If you don't see that, you'll be wondering why Mark devotes so much space describing the preparation for the Last Supper. Mark devotes more than twice as many words planning for the room that he does to, of Jesus' transforming the Passover into the ritual of communion. If it's not to show us Jesus' sovereign control, I don't even know why this section would be here. So what can we learn from this? Well, we're not going to know who the rejectors of Christ are. They didn't know, but Jesus did. Evidently, the risk of loving those who will waste our love is never a reason to stop loving them. Christians give from a position of strength. We don't give love to get love. We give love because we have been loved. She loved much because she had been forgiven much and she knew how much she had been forgiven. We remember God in his sovereign control of is in sovereign control of everything even when someone plots against you personally. We don't need to worry about those things. Is that fun? It isn't. I'll tell you firsthand. It isn't. 
But God is in sovereign control. Even when your enemies succeed in causing you harm or great inconvenience, God knows your every need before you do. Folks, we live in a sin-cursed, upside-down world. Awful things happen. If they hated Christ and you belong to him, they'll hate you as well. And sometimes your enemies will actually be able to bring harm against you. But do you know what? God is in sovereign control. God is in control even when wicked people do such despicable things. Even when they think that God will favor them if they do evil things. There are so many people with with religious convictions that will do horrible things because they're convictions, but it's not based on the Word of God. These people, these these scribes and Pharisees, think they're doing God a favor by murdering an innocent person. But God isn't surprised by it because God is in sovereign control. God is in control even when hypocrites betray you and wound you and pretend to be your friend. Some of you have lived that. I have. But God is in sovereign control even in the days where there's there's tears on tears and excruciating heartbreak. God is in control of all the timing of events even when you have other plans. Sometimes we have the best laid plans and they change. And you know what? That happens a lot. But God is in sovereign control. That's the answer you need to run to. Even when it hurts and even when you're betrayed, even when you're deceived, even when people manipulate things and they hurt you. We all have a reaction when bad things happen. But going beyond the first response of the bad reaction and staying in that bad reaction, that becomes the real problem. Proverbs 3.25 and 26 says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. Some people are just more prone than others to, to have that happen to them. But what helps is to learn who God is. To consciously force your mind to remember that you have to put your trust in God. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Some people have to force their mind to come back to the truth of God several times a day. We all need to do that. If you'd please turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 6. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worth, worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We can tell the truth about what Scripture says at every point. We don't need to be giving our enemies a reason because they're best judged if they have no reason to reject Christ. The essence of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves. The essence of the gospel is that we need Christ to fully atone for our sins. We can only be saved one way through Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that ought to be the forefront of what we think and remember about this Passover lamb who fulfilled the Old Testament symbolism for us. In our place, he stood, and he did that to give us eternal life. How can we not have sacrificial service and a whole life devoted to him, holding nothing back, no matter the cost. The great preacher J.C. Ryle comments uh, of those who always call for moderation in religion, and this is what Ryle says, quote, if a man devotes his time, money, affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they will not blame him. If he gives himself up to service of money, pleasure, politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. In short, they regard it as a waste. J.C. Ryle was right. There will always be struggles, but when your faith grows and you see how worthy Christ is, you come through those struggles, and then you march forward in service to God, giving all you have, even in the face of diversity, for his honor and glory with all joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you for the limitless list of blessings that are ours in Christ. Thank you for providing everything we need in, Christ, in life and godliness through the true knowledge of your Son. Lord, teach us to stop and think about right things. Teach us to quickly run to praise, to run to supplication and prayer to run to thanksgiving when we encounter awful things that are so all over this world. 
Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us, that we might be encouraged, that we might be faithful with stewardship of the wonderful message of, the, of new life in Christ. Use us for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's most precious and glorious name. Amen.